Lord, uh, it's so easy to acknowledge with our mouth, you are everything. Um, but my life is marked by you not being everything all the time. And uh, Father, I pray uh, we so badly need your Holy Spirit's wisdom and guidance uh, to peel back the layers of what is everything to us. And so, Lord, I ask that you would do that now uh, for me as the one you've chosen to stand up here and say something this morning, as well as for those of us who are gathered in the room. We so desperately need you to uncover what we have made everything to us, Lord, and for you to put yourself there. So do that for us this morning, Lord. Uh, we worship you in your name. Amen. Please be seated. If you uh, have a Bible, um, and I hope you do, we are going to be continuing on in Colossians 3. And uh, I'm going to read uh, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 5 to kind of set the context for our time in the Word this morning. Um, so if you have a Bible, go there. Colossians 3. Verses 1 through 5, uh, we're continuing our series in Colossians, uh, which we have been for a month or so now, a couple months. So this is Colossians 3, uh, verses 1 through 5. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And this is verse 5, which is where we're going to camp out uh, in the, the tail end of verse 5 this morning. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Randy, a few weeks ago, started us off in this specific chunk of verses and setting this kind of all up. And he made it very, very clear in his sermon that Paul is calling us, he's inviting us into putting different sinful aspects of our earthly nature actually to death. And Randy did a great job of encouraging us that the capacity to do that, the power to do that, actually comes specifically from what we see going on in verses 1 through 4. It is in the fact of setting our minds setting our hearts, our affections on the truth of who we are now in Christ and what's been done for us as a result of Christ. That that's the place from which we now access power. We have access to power to actually put to death many of the things that in that list, verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry, for honest... Many of those things can tend to dominate our lives. Joel, last week, dived into the difficult and very sensitive topic of sexuality and what it looks like when sexuality and its unbiblical forms uh, are being put to death. Today, we're going to look at a couple things, very, very specific things. We're going to be looking at the specific issue of greed. Everybody's excited about this. Greed. Money, 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 money. And uh, Paul's conclusion, that was not in the notes, by the way, uh, that all of these things, this kind of list of things, is in fact a form of idolatry. 
which I hope today that we really will redefine what is greed and what is idolatry. I think these greed's probably a little more of a familiar term. Idolatry is something that it's just not a word we use in our culture uh, that often, definitely not in the context of the church. Um, we don't talk about that at small group. I'm struggling with idolatry this week. Um, so, anyways, let me start with this question. Does it strike you odd, does it seem odd to you that greed is the only other thing in this list other than sexual sins? Like, does that seem weird to you? Like, certainly there are other things that would be, wow, things, that would be considered idolatrous. So why is Paul put greed, tag greed at the very end of this? Why would that be? And in specific, why is it at the end? I'm inviting you, and I'm inviting my, I got invited by the Lord into paying close attention to the order of this. Because I'm convinced that it's very important. Paul is driving at something here by putting greed at the end of this list. And it made me think of something I'd read a while back, but it brought me back into it. Something that C.S. Lewis refers to as the spell that we're under. I don't know whether you ever have ever spent any time reading. If you haven't, I would encourage you to read the essay, The Weight of Glory. Um, but Lewis purports this idea that we are literally under a spell. That a spell has been cast over us as individuals on this earth. And that as a result, we have become so numb to it as a result of this. We're so numb that we are unable to see things for what they really are. I'm going to read you a little excerpt from this, and hopefully this will begin to, to tie together. Why is Paul putting greed at the end of this list of obvious things, sexual immorality, things like that? This is Lewis from The Weight of Glory. He says, and he is, in fact, in his, in his essay here, he's trying to cast an opposite spell. He's trying to wake us up to the truth, which is what we're here to do this morning. This is why we gather here, is to wake up to the truth of what's going on in our lives and in the world. So Lewis says this, Do you think that I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am, but remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantment, enchantments as well as inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. This is, this is so good. Almost our whole education has been directed at silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all of our modern philosophies, the things, the foundations on which our culture is built, almost all of our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. The spell, the good, the depth of your desire, what you want, it can be found here. It can be had here. Well, I would suggest something that Paul is inviting us into in this passage this morning, and that is this. The spell, the spell has got to be broken for you and I. That's the journey that we're going on this morning. This list of things that ends in greed and ends in idolatry, is he's trying to shake us and wake us up, inform us of the depth of our desire that we would stop placing it on things that can never satisfy it. Audi 
the car company has come up with a new uh, line of commercials. I saw this. I've been watching the Olympics incessantly. I wish I was in Canada because I heard they have 24-hour coverage. Um, of course they do. Uh, but anyways, I saw this commercial and I thought that this would maybe potentially uh, help us kind of connect this idea. I've been told to desire a red Italian sports car. I've been told beige and predictable fit my lifestyle. We've been told hollow status symbols are the goal. I've been told this is the way to retire. I've been told it captures my essence. And the neighbors will be jealous. Okay, the point of the sermon is you want the wrong car. Uh, it's a beautiful picture. Every one of them, the boy, the soccer mom, the businessman, the retiree, the Hollywood musician, Rascal Flats guy. Uh, they all started it with, I've been told. I've been told something. I'm under a spell, and... Although Audi would love for you to believe that their car is the key, which is often what we do, isn't it? I just swap it, I swap it for something else, something greater. Okay, yeah, I think I do want that more. That is a great illustration of what we do, how we manage our lives, how we manage our desire. But it never does it, does it? There's always something else. Audi's commercial will be trumped by some other commercial. I'm sure Mercedes will write some rebuttal commercial that will prove that they know they are really the object of your desire. You see, when I sin, when I do the things that Paul's listing in this passage in Colossians, there's always something underneath the action of my sin. There's a root heart motivation. And that root heart motivation for me is oftentimes defined by a worldly spell. I sit in front of it all the time when I sit in front of my television. And don't get me wrong, I sit in front of my television. But it's selling me something. It's, it's, it's casting a spell. There's always something behind my actions. And that root heart motivation it's, that's driving that action, the spell that's driving that action, it tells me this. It tells me that if I have this, if I, if I possess this, it will ultimately change how I feel about myself on the deepest levels. It's speaking to the very, very core of your being. We laugh at the commercial, but it's true. It's that, <laughs> I mean, Rascal Flatts guy said it. It's, uh, it's my essence. I mean, that's a great word. It's a word for identity. It's a word like gestalt. It's your cornerstone, the thing upon which your entire life is built, your essence. 
Paul's exposing something crucial here. He's using this list, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. He's using this list to walk us into the depth of our heart. And I believe he's leaving us at the most fundamental root of what lies behind these actions and these behaviors. Paul, and this should encourage you because God is interested in this. He's so much more interested in your heart than he is your behavior. (laughs) Paul's going for the heart of the matter here. And here it is. Here's the root. Greed is not simply an issue of money. It is an issue of more. It's not an issue of money. It's an issue of more. And therefore, this is why this is good, because all of us are in the boat. We all deal with this. We all are greedy. I want more. We could all start chanting it right now. I want more. I want more. USA. Um, But here's the question, and this is a... Because I, I want us to get in touch with this desire of I want more because it's not all bad. The question is this, more of what? What do you really want more of? You see, money is, t- it's way too simple. It's way too easy to target. Scripture is so clear about this. If you go to 1 Timothy 6, 6, and you can turn there if you want, but don't, I can just read it to you. It says this, And this is just how clear it is. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and we have clothing, we will be content with that. Well, everyone's clothed here. Did everyone eat this morning? Are you content this morning? Verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Money's an easy target. Scripture, I mean, I don't even have to preach on that. It just says it. It plunges us into things. It leads us into temptation. It's a trap. It's the root of all kinds of evil. We sadly see this playing out in our friend Tiger Woods' life. But it's not just about money for him. We have all known about his drive, and I think he's even a great example of this. I want more. What's enough? 17 masters, one, 30 masters. Money is a serious issue, but Paul is getting at something much more here. And a few weeks ago, or maybe a month or so ago, I ironically taught on this same idea in Colossians 2 verses 9 when I talked about the fullness of Christ. Colossians 2.20 says, since you died with Christ, because remember he said there in the first verse there, your life is now, you have died, he's saying it again, you have died in, in Colossians 3, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. In chapter 2 he says, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, Why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rule, to its authority? You have died, if you were in Christ this morning, to the basic principles of this world. And we talked about one of these basic principles. I termed it the basic principle of addition. 
Because in Colossians 2.9, before that, it says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who's the head over every power and authority. We talked about this. This is one of the spells that we live under. You and I live under the spell that you have to add something to your life to actually be full. That's what Audi's selling us in that. Add something. You're not full. So life becomes about this relentless pursuit of grasping a hold of whatever it is that I believe is going to make me feel full when the gospel is saying, when Paul is saying here, you already are. You may not know how to experience the depth of that fullness, which is the journey of our lives, y'all. Learning to experience the depth of what we already have. Paul's inviting us back into this in in chapter 3. Greed is at the end of this list because it speaks to the heart, to the root of the things preceding it. Sexual immorality, lust, impurity, evil desires. Greed is at the root of those things. It's bringing us into a fuller view of what he brought out in chapter 2, this basic principle of addition. It's another way of saying it. When your eyes are set on the truth of who you are in Christ, what he invites us back into in this first part of three, you stop living a life of more. You set it down. That life, the very essence of who I am, stops being about anxiously grasping for more, fill in the blank. You fill it in. We all could stand up. I could ask every single one of you, what do you want more of? We could fill these walls in this room with writing of all the things that I actually believe I need to have to feel full. To be full. John MacArthur in his commentary on Colossians goes so far to say this about greed. Covetousness, which is another word for this, it's a more in-depth word, is the root cause of all sin. He states that Paul's mention of greed in this passage, or covetousness, is last because it is the root evil from which all the previous sins spring. The Greek word for greed is pleonexia. Two words, pleon, which means more, Exo, which means to have. William Barclay says this about that Greek word. It is therefore a sin with a very wide range. (laughs) Deep and wide. It's like saying gravity affects stuff. (laughs) Gravity affects everything. He's inviting us to understand the, 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 the expanse of this issue. To have more. You see, it's a danger if we limit this term, how our culture would limit it. And I do it. I'm not greedy. I don't have the means to be greedy, honestly. Like, I've got limits to what I'm going to earn doing this, so I'm not really greedy. I can't get out there and hustle for the dollar the way other people can. It's a danger if we limit this term greedy strictly to money or even the gaining of material possession. Because if we do that, if you and I do that, 
It keeps us from understanding and having to grapple with the heart of the issue, which you and I deal with every day on multiple levels. The layers of this, it's catastrophic. (laughs) I want more. I want more. And if I'm honest, my life, if I just look at what I do, my life is marked by the pursuit of what I believe will satisfy that desire. Can we just say it? My life is marked by what I believe will satisfy the desire for more. David Clarkston, who was a Puritan preacher in the 1600s, said this about this greed. Though few will own it, nothing is more common. Will you own it this morning? Can we own it? That that desire for more is inside of us? Is it possible, and I think we're going to get to this here in a second, that that desire isn't all bad? It's what we do with it. We are all greedy. Maybe the list in front of your greed isn't sexual immorality. Maybe it's honor and glory. Maybe it's material possessions. Maybe it is money. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's control. But whatever it is, you and I want more. Some of you know I've picked up golf this year. It has picked me up and body slammed me. Um, it doesn't take long. I mean, all my friends tease me about this because I've only played for a year, and I'm actually not doing that bad at it, I guess. But I act like I seriously have my tour card. Like, like, like things hinge on this for me. Uh, I want more. I'm never satisfied. More yardage. <laughs> hit it a little further. Even if I hit like a great drive, the, the only thing I say is, is the person's ball who's further than me. Like, yeah, I'm still like 30 yards short of their drive. Um, what do I want? I want a better score. I score the best score in my life, and I still think about the shots I lost. Oh, if that putt would have fallen. Gah. Like everything in the world is like on the fulcrum of my golf game. I can act like that. I want better equipment. I spend hours on Craigslist looking for club deals for me and my friends. It's embarrassing. More, more, more. Now, these are easy things to see, but how about let's go to a whole other level. How about affirmation? Do you know how many of you I want you to, to come up to me after this and tell me I did a good job? Good work with small groups, Dave. They're in such a better place than they have been. How many of you telling me that I'm good at this is enough? Is it 20 of you? Is it 400 of you? What if all of you said it? Would that be enough? Or is there, is there more? Do I need more? Let me ask this question and please ask it with me. If it's never enough... If you constantly find ourselves in search of something more, shouldn't that teach us something about ourselves? Shouldn't that reveal something to us about the depth of this desire? About this world and what it has to offer us? About the very nature, the essence of the desire that you have inside of you? 
You and I want more, but more of what? Who gets to decide? Do we actually believe that we're not under the influence of that? That I am the one who decides what I want? Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. But they cannot fathom what has happened from the beginning to the end. Eternity. Just by the nature of the definition of the term, we're talking about something that is lasting forever. No beginning, no end. Just get the Audi, right? Close chapter. Desire fulfilled. Lewis says it in the weight of glory like this. I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each of you. We cannot tell it. I can't tell the secret. Because it is a desire, I can't tell you exactly what it is, because it is, it is a desire for something that has never, never actually appeared in our experience. But we cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. The inconsolable secret. He goes on and talks about some of these objects that we fix this desire to. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located, the desire to satisfy was located, will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the things itself, for the desire, the very center they turn into dumb idols and they break the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only a scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. Please lean into this, guys. I've prayed that you would. Is it possible that our greed, <laughs> I want more, could could be one of the greatest revealers of a deep and hidden good desire and truth. That I could even revel in where I see my greed because it's an invitation to understand the depth of what I was made for. That if you could begin, if I could begin to understand that depth and the source of my desire and the truth of it, and if I could begin to walk in it, then it would keep me from the things that Paul is talking about here. From this sinful abuse and manifestations of good God-given things like sex, like materials, the things he gives us. St. Augustine hits the nail on the head or the golf ball off the tee, whatever metaphor works for you. He says this, you have made us for yourself. O oh Lord, and our heart is restless. Restless until it finds rest in you. Contentment is the opposite of greed and covetousness. Lives that are marked by rest. Lives that are marked by peace with what we have. I have what the Lord has given me for today and that is enough. 
with where we're at in life in our journey. Sometimes that feels impossible, doesn't it? Because of the spell that I'm under. I live under the spell, and it's such a strong spell. I can't be content. I can't accept that this is what the Lord has for me today. Is that a mark of our lives? Contentment, rest, peace? Philippians 4.11, Paul says it like this. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. You see how he's ripping it out of the circumstances? Whether I've got everything I need or whether I have nothing. Whether I want things or I have those things that I want. I can do everything, Paul says, through him who gives me strength. Contentment for Paul wasn't an issue of circumstance. It was an issue of heart fixation, of focus, of centrality. The gospel of Jesus Christ had become Paul's cornerstone. Everything else in his life was ordered around the truth of the gospel now. It's why we teach classes like the gospel-centered life. It's the invitation to understanding the depth of this desire. So let's talk about idolatry for a second. Why does he go there after greed? I would encourage you to just think of idolatry, at least for the purposes of this morning, in this term, misplaced desire. Again, in small group, or if you're running into one of your friends and you said, hey, how's your week going? They said, oh, it's been, it's been tough. And you were to say, well, what's going on? It's like, no one's going to look at you and say, well, I made... A, um, I made a small image out of wood and I've been bowing down to it and I'm just wrecked by that. <laughs> like, that's just, <laughs> just not going to happen probably. Um, although when my TV goes out and I spend four hours behind it trying to fix up the wires on my knees, I don't know. You think about that one for a second. But I think Paul's inviting us into seeing idolatry just like he is greed, that it's something that we're all doing. Tim Keller probably has the most useful book on this topic. I would encourage you to read it. It's called Counterfeit Gods. Um, I'm going to use some quotes of his right now. It says, he says this, We cannot confine idolatry to the literal bowing down before the images of false gods. It can be, t- it can be done internally in the soul and in the heart without being done externally and literally. So it's not necessarily just an external thing, actual bowing down to something, because we don't do that. It's something very, very deep and internal, soul idolatry. He gives us a better, Keller, for me, gives one of the best working definitions. A counterfeit God or an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that if you should lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, two great terms, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. Knee jerk. If anything becomes more fundamental to God, 
fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity than it is an idol. Ooh. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to my happiness, to my contentment, to my meaning in life, to my identity, then it is an idol. That's like a slug to the chest, guys. In Romans 1, Paul talks about it. Two exchanges happen. Romans 1, 23, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. There's an exchange that goes on. It's a glory exchange. The second exchange is in verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Paul is saying something very important here, and I know this, it might feel like drinking from a fire hose. I feel like I'm preaching from a fire hose right now. Idolatry is much more than seeking out alternate means to satisfy your desires. It's a matter of God's glory. It's a matter of worship. It's a matter of service. That when you and I take things like that car, whatever your car is, and we make an idol out of it, we put our hope in it, we put our trust in it, we make it the thing upon which our heart is fixated, getting. When we take those created things, which, hear me saying that, that means anything can be an idol. Absolutely anything. We not only love and trust them, which is an issue of worship, but we obey them. These created things, which are good in and of themselves, they become the objects of our hearts and minds' continual pursuit. And they have rule over us. That's why that passage in, in, in Colossians 2 is so important. Christ, who is head over every power and authority, <laughs> they control us. A term, I'll borrow it from Keller, they are our functional masters. They rule us. What Paul is inviting us into this morning, guys, is understanding the depth of this desire that you and I have so misunderstood the depth of the desire that the Lord has put inside of us, the source of that desire, its origin, which is himself, that we're left with nothing else to do. I've got to take something something I can see, something that I can get a hold of. It might just be barely out of reach. I'm not reaching for the 5000 or $5 million yacht because I know that's not within my reach, but I've got my little yachts, <laughs> whatever they are. I wrote this sermon in like a million-dollar lake house at Center Hill this weekend. It was hilarious. <laughs> when I kept thinking about it when I was there. I'm like, ah, but I'm doing that because the reality is, is I'll never have that. But I've got my lake house. It's not quite as nice as this, but I've got it. I can get to it. We have to take something we believe that can satiate that desire and make it the center of our lives. Every relationship until my marriage got destroyed underneath this. Every woman I dated, she buckled under the weight of the desire that I brought to the table that I believed she could deliver on. 
I brought eternity to the table and said, make it reality for me, baby. And she said, I'm out. You're killing me. And she was right. I was. I believe she could quench that thirst, and she couldn't. We do it. Things buckle under the weight of this eternal desire. So how do we put these idols to death? Some real practical steps here. Identification and replacement. This is, again, not my idea, but if Ecclesiastes is right, everything I say here this morning has already been said and thought before. So I don't have to live under the pressure of that. Um, Idols cannot just be removed. They have to be replaced. I want you to follow me here. They can't just be removed. They've got to be replaced. Something of actual practical value, something of greater desirability has to come in and overtake the idolatrous object. You can't just expose it for saying, okay, that's never going to fulfill my desire. Something else has to come in that actually can. I'd encourage you, I mean, this is a good example of this, or maybe it's a a small example of this. If you go into your fridge, which I do this often, we buy fruit that we never eat or vegetables that we never eat, and you open it up and you find that vegetable um, that's rotten, um, it would seem odd to you, wouldn't it, that you would not empty the fridge of all the food that was rotten, throw it away, and then not refill the fridge. Like, you're going to eat. (laughs) The question is, what am I putting back into the fridge? I'm not putting rotten things back into the fridge. I'm going to put something good back into the fridge, something that can actually satisfy the desire. This is why what Paul is saying in verses 1 through 4 is so important when he's saying set your hearts and set your minds on Christ. So what does this practically look like? I need to look at the time real fast. Yeah. Four things for identification. These are all borrowed things. These are not my ideas. They're in that book, uh, Counterfeit Gods. And if you want to hear more about them, uh, they're in that sermon a few months ago. Four areas that you can expose your real idols. Your imagination. Your money. Your response to unanswered prayer or frustrated hopes and your most uncontrollable emotions. Your imagination, whatever your mind goes to effortlessly. Your money, whatever your money goes to effortlessly. How you respond to unanswered prayers or frustrated hopes. Is it unquenchable despair? Or your most uncontrollable emotions? If you do some time with Jesus, (laughs) asking What's behind those four questions? I guarantee you, because I've done it. You will find the things that you are saying, this can satisfy my desire. But just identifying them is not enough. We need to remove them. And we remove them by replacing them. Remember, we don't just take them out. We put something in its place. So how I begin to put these to death is something that's got to move in, something of greater desire. And these are not the only things. These were just the things the Lord brought to me about how we move on past identification. Because let's just be honest, a lot of us love to get together and talk about our problems. And uh, we actually believe that if I'm talking about something, then I'm doing something about it. I know that stings a little bit. 
but it's true. I'm, my life's marked by this. That just having the conversation about what I'm putting my hope in makes me feel like I've stopped putting my hope in that thing. But that oftentimes isn't the case. It's just I'm just identifying what's going on. The Lord is inviting me into moving beyond that step. So here's how we replace it. Psalm 119, I would encourage you to read. There's a lot in there. The first thing is, is I ask for help. Psalm 119.18 says this, Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. Open my eyes that I may wonder at who you are. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart's deceitful, deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? You and I need help to understand where we've done this. The second thing is this, and this is big. The word, the scripture must get face time. Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Hebrews 4.12 talks about the fact that the word is living and active. He's inviting us, guys. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Scripture is like the treasure map. <laughs> it's like national treasure. Nicholas Cage, like if you knew that there was something there, would you get out of your seat and go after it? The word is so important in the replacement of our idols. And then we learn to take thoughts captive. That's the third thing. And I'd encourage you, I won't expound on this much, but what 2 Corinthians 10.5 means that we demolish arguments and set up every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Obedient to Christ, every thought. That every thought we have becomes obedient to the confession of the gospel of Christ. There's a battle going on. The spell has got to be broken. Invite the Lord into that, guys. Let me pray for us. Lord, cast the spell this morning. Break the spell that we live under. Lord, I pray that you would explode this idea that what lies behind our greed is a desire for something eternal that only you can satisfy. Lord, I pray that you would break our hearts over the idols that we have made, that we have, we have so trusted in their ability to deliver on meeting this desire that I've put my whole life and hope on these things. Lord, I pray that you would pick those things up because they're light for you, even though they're very heavy for us. I pray that you would dash them against the rocks and that you would do that by exposing us to the absolute wonder of who you are, Jesus. That we would see your beauty in such a new way today that we would never forget it, that our faces would shine like the face of Moses and that we would radiate your glory, Lord. We love you. In your name, amen.